and for along with me. Uh, stand as, let's stand together as we read God's word, Titus chapter 2 from verse 1 to verse 15. This is Paul speaking to Titus as he writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that, not, that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we have these words of life before us, words that give clarity for us in how to live, words that shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, words that are life-giving. And so I just ask, Lord, may you use me this morning as your vessel, your conduit to share your truth to your people. And may you give us listening ears as we do here ears that uh, would hear your word, that it would fall on good ground, that it would produce much fruit for your glory and for our joy. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as, begin, as we begin this morning, I want to share with you a little bit of the rationale behind why we are doing a series on discipleship. It was a few months ago that we performed a health check at Gateway Bible Church that has not happened for a number of years. And in November, we were blessed to go to a retreat where we had time to retreat a little bit, but as well as go over the health check and see what are the needs of Gateway Bible Church. And as we were looking at these needs, there are certain things that kept coming up. There's, there's comments and desires of younger families to maybe meet up with some older families. There's desires for husbands to maybe have some kind of training and mentoring from older men. There was a desire uh, that there would be more family-integrated things that are going on. And as we were even driving up, we listened to a sermon series, which uh, Pastor Rod uh, preached, or not a sermon series, a podcast that he alluded to last week, which was Discipleship in the Church. And it was about a church in Indiana 
that was using their facilities to um, share the gospel and spread the good news of Christ. And as we looked at these various topics that came up and the needs that were in the body, they all came to a funnel that ended with, uh, or that was about discipleship. So discipleship in the family, discipleship in the world, discipleship in the church, living a life together. And so we decided at the beginning of this year, we wanted to discuss this matter and in a sense, refresh this idea of discipleship. And so this is an overarching need that we thought of and we are proactively working towards it. And so this morning, we are going to be looking at discipleship within the church after we have already looked at Discipleship 101 and Discipleship in the World. And so this morning, I want to take you back with me a little a number of years. This is 2006 when I was 16. Don't gasp. It's okay. I was born in 1990. And this is the time that I got saved. I got baptized. And during this time, I started being introduced to people like John Piper, and for the first time, I began to see joy in the Christian faith. And it was during this time that one of my friends, who was four years older, he took me under his wing, and some of you might know him. His name was Mark Zerbnenko. And although we were friends to a certain degree, Mark began to be intentional about our relationship. He took me to John Piper conferences. We listened to Alistair Begg while we, while we were driving on the road. We had sauna nights together where we discussed theology and specifically Reformed theology. We went to Lecrae concerts. We shared about our relationships with girls or our desire to have a relationship with a girl. It was a very fruitful time of growth in my life. And I would say that I would label this time of our friendship uh, with words such as intentional relational and organic. Nothing was forced. It was just him taking me along to all the places that he was going, reaching out and taking initiative. <clears throat> and this is just one of the people that God used in my life. You see, Mark was a pipeline. In this season of my life, God sent him my way simply to share life together. The purpose of a pipeline is to share fluid from one direction that's going, making it sure that it gets to its destination. And biblical discipleship is very much like being a pipeline. Christians who root themselves in God's truth are in a position to do good to others. And so God uses us as conduits for his truth. We take in God's truth, we learn to live it, and then we pass it on to others. I've always called discipleship the sandwich rule. You know somebody who knows a little bit more than you, maybe a few years older, and you sit under their teaching and their life, and then you find someone who is a couple years younger than you or a little bit behind, and you pour into them. As we are, were even reading Titus, Titus had Paul. Every Timothy and Titus need a Paul. Every Mark needs a Barnabas. Now, Mark was just one person in my life when I think of one-on-one -on -one personal discipleship. Another person comes to mind, and that is when I graduated seminary. I was 27 years old, and I felt alone. I felt like after graduating seminary and working full-time as a pastor, I knew nobody in the area. Well, luckily, my sister went to this really great church called Gateway Bible Church, and I already met Pastor Rod, and so I emailed him and asked if there was some kind of fellowship happening among pastors. 
And he invited me to come to a Gospel Coalition pastor's lunch. And at this pastor's lunch, I met someone that many of you might know. His name was Matthew Blevins. And Maddie, Pastor Maddie, connected with me. And not me asking him, but him taking initiative, he started meeting with me every single week for coffee. All we did was share life together. What are you preaching on this Sunday? How can I encourage you? One time our kids were sick, and he came over and prayed for them. Then we started office sharing in my office in Hayward at the previous church. And I would listen how Maddie would talk to his members uh, in the congregation, how he would pray for them over the phone, how he spent his mornings praying for the people. And organically, just being in his presence, I began to learn what is it like to pastor, to love people, to shepherd them. This morning, we are talking about just one part of the greater whole in the Great Commission. I want to just turn your attention to the screen. As we look at the Great Commission, and as we already heard it in Matthew 28, it's making disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. And so it begins with this idea of outreach. It's people who come into contact with the gospel for the first time. It continues in follow-up, and it really lands in growth where the majority of our life is at. The growth process is a process of increasing in the knowledge of God's will so you can walk ever more worthily of the Lord, seeking to please Him in all good things and bearing fruit in every good work. This is where we find ourselves for the majority of our life is in the growth stage, becoming more like Jesus Christ. You see, the the call of the Great Commission is not only for a response to the gospel, but also for obedience to the gospel. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And so the question becomes, and the question I always ask myself is, how long will it take for you to observe all of Jesus' commands? And the answer is your whole life. And so we are in the process of growth and becoming more like Christ in this lifelong journey. Disciple-making is what the church does in the songs that we sing, in the scripture that's read, in the weekly opportunities to serve one another in home groups that are happening today, in relationships of accountability, in the mutual gifts that we use. And so this morning, I want to look at what discipleship looks like in the context of the local church. In Discipleship 101, Pastor Rod gave the definition that discipleship is a divine call to follow Jesus as Lord in every area of your life and then compel others to do the same. Last week, we looked at discipleship in the world. Disciples are to now compel others to follow Jesus by being their God-given influence as salt and light. And today, I want to look at this idea, training others, God's organic growth model for church purity. Training others. Training means that it's intentional and that it is deliberate. It is not passive. Training involves work. Training involves time. God's organic. So we're going to see that this is not something that is forced. It it happens naturally. It's very organic like in a farm. Growth model. This is how God grows his church. This is God's natural way to grow his body so that it becomes more mature like Christ. And ultimately, church purity. The ultimate goal is that Christ's bride would be pure. That's what we even found here in verse 14. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
But before we go any further, let us define what is discipleship. What is discipleship? I want to give you a very simple definition that we can find on the previous slide. And discipleship is this. It is deliberately, intentionally relating to another Christian with the aim of doing them good spiritually. So deliberately, intentionally relating to another Christian with the aim, with the goal, with the target of doing them good spiritually. It's a process and not a program. And so discipling is essentially whatever we do to intentionally help other Christians grow in holiness. It can look like reading a Christian book together and discussing it, outlining a book of the Bible together, <clears throat> cough, cough, the book of Ruth at the Men's Simeon Trust, going through a course seminar class and discussing it over lunch, sharing insights from the weekly sermon over coffee. It may mean bringing your kids over to play at another mom's home and discussing last week's Sunday night devotional. It may mean inviting an unmarried man or woman over for dinner and talking to them about what the scripture teaches about marriage and parenting. We could go on and on. What discipling looks like in practice is pretty wide open, but the key is this. Whatever you do, it needs to be rooted in the truth of scripture and presented on the basis of an intentional and loving relationship. And so, training others, God's organic growth model for church purity. Before we get into our passage this morning, you might be asking, Dennis, do we need another sermon on personal and inter-church discipleship? And I'm glad that you asked the question. I polled some of you this week and asked you a question. Some of you who are younger, middle-aged, and I got some responses from this question that I asked. I asked the question, what would be different in your life if you met an older and or more mature Christian man or woman, if you met with them on a weekly or monthly basis? And I asked this question because specifically today we're looking at Titus 2 that teaches that. And here are some answers from people that are sitting here this morning. I do not meet with anyone who is older than me, but I believe it would be fruitful in many ways. For one, it would be practicing Titus 2. I think we need more Titus 2 women in the church. And my hope would be if I were to meet with an older and more mature Christian, that I would be challenged and encouraged by this person. I would love for this person to call me out on my sin, all the while equipping me to find a solution with God's word, telling me the truth with love. Another person wrote, I would have someone to confide in when problems occur that you don't know how to handle. Someone you can trust to help you achieve a mature relationship with Christ. The benefit is to be able to have someone who will hold you up in their prayers and check up on you. In other words, accountability. Another person wrote, personally, I think it would make a huge difference. There are times when I could use some advice or encouragement. Being able to talk to someone who has been walking with the Lord, parenting with the Lord in a spirit-filled marriage. I second-guess myself often, not completely sure how best to address situations. The encouragement that it could bring to both of us. I'm thirsty for the Lord, someone that I can hold conversations with, someone that can understand, relate, laugh, and cry with, encourage and discourage, call me out when I'm stumbling, and help me, help me back onto the path. I think of Christian from Pilgrim's Progress and Christian. I'm not that, I hope this answer helps. And some people who are already meeting with someone, this is what they wrote. Meeting with older and wiser Christian men has always been encouraging. 
I always hear their different life perspective, how they've grown, and how they continually want to desire Christ in their day-to-day lives. It encourages me in how to model Christ's likeness when I get older. Another person wrote, I do have friendships with older women, and I value them so much. Instead of worrying and talking about the day-to-day stuff with your peers, in other words, homeschooling, the older and wiser woman will remind you of the big picture. I just get lots of relationship wisdom because they've been through a lot more life than me. Another person wrote, discipleship has been beneficial for accountability, encouragement, equipping, and wisdom. It has provided clarity for personal life, family life, and ministry from what to study, what to read, how to think with a biblical worldview throughout life and current events. I am who I am today because of God's grace and my disciples' time, care, and investment in my life. This is coming from people who are sitting here today, the need and also those who are already doing it. And so as we hear that, I want to encourage us to all partake in this work. Because church, there is no such thing as microwave disciples or drive-through disciples or Safeway disciples. (laughs) The church is a garden and not a grocery. A grocery store gets, a garden gives. Crock-pot Christians are going to cost you something. It might be tough and time-consuming, but there's a cultivation and a slow cooking process over the years. As I heard one pastor say, he said, it was 10 years of crying with them, teaching them, and them being at my home. And so I want to ask us, what legacy are we leaving for our church? How are we investing into one another this morning so that the body builds itself up in love, so that we continue to have solid families, solid men in leadership, women who are equipped in raising children. So with that lengthy introduction, let's look at our passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 1. In summary, the book of Titus is about how you are living based on what you believe. Once again, how you're living based on what you believe. And so verses 11 to 15 speak to us of the goal. And then verses 1 through 10 give us the how and the who of how this happens. And so let's look first of the goal, which is found in verse 11 to 15. And the question that we're going to ask in the goal is, why do we need to disciple? Why do we need to disciple? There's obviously many reasons, but specifically in this passage, it is for believers to walk in holiness. Look with me in verse 11. It says here, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? Renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ's desire for his body is that the bride would be pure. Matthew 18, when we study church discipline, was that same purpose, so that the body would be pure. In Galatians 6, the reason why you restore a person who's caught in the transgression is so that the the body of Christ would be pure. Ultimately, the purpose is so that you would be holy, so that you would be able to be the salt and the light that we discussed last week, that you would be really salty and very bright. And Paul began saying, for the grace of God has appeared. This is a a connection with the previous section. 
The grace of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he brought salvation for all people. And there's training that's going on here. The grace of God has appeared training us. Training means to provide instruction for informed and responsible living. It is to educate. And so just as the gospel has come and Christ has come and has appeared to train us to renounce certain things and live a certain way, the previous section speaks about how men and women should train others to do likewise. But the purpose of all of this is because of the gospel, is because the grace of God has appeared, because Christ has come into our life. This is the why we disciple, and the why we disciple is for church holiness. Holiness and obedience go hand in hand. In Matthew 28, we read that we disciple so that people can obey all that they've commanded, all that Christ has commanded. And so it takes time to obey all that Christ has commanded. And above everything else, discipling really comes down to obedience to Christ's words and commands. That's really the great goal of discipling, to teach people to obey what Christ has commanded. Here the training is to specifically renounce the godliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we need help in, the, in these things. We need help in renouncing ungodliness. We need help in living self-controlled and godly lives. I always say the beauty of the church is that there's always somebody who sees where you're at. You can never see, you can see yourself from the front, but you don't always see yourself from the side, and you don't always see yourself from behind. And the beauty of the church body is that we have one another to be able to encourage, to be able to correct, to be able to grow in this holiness. You see, this is important because when we look at the context and we look at verse 1, we see here that there are a group of people who profess but do not possess. In verse 1 of chapter 2, there's this contrast, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, who is, who is Paul talking about? Well, those people in verse 16 of chapter 1, you can follow along with me. They profess to know God, but they deny him by what? Their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Christ comes to bridge that gap between knowledge and action. And the point of discipleship in the church is to do likewise, to bridge the gap between knowledge and action, to bridge the gap between the art and science of how to follow Christ in real time. We'll see that the church needs both old and young to minister to one another. Those who have gone before, as we've even read, and some of these people that I've pulled who learned, who have learned and are trained how to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But the ultimate goal is holiness. The ultimate goal is that Christ would purify for himself a people for his own possession. And so we're saying that we should be intentional with one another with the aim of doing good spiritually. And the best good that we can do for anybody is to help them become more like Jesus Christ. A holy life will not only benefit the individual, but it will benefit their spouse if they're married. It will benefit their kids if they have them. It will benefit their neighbors. It will benefit the church body because that member of the body is pure and walking with Christ and holy and they're more useful and they have more power and strength as they're walking in the Spirit. It will benefit their coworkers. It will benefit gospel witness. We see it here 
when it talks about gospel witness right in our passage in verse 6, in verse 5. Why are the older women supposed to teach the younger that the word of God may not be reviled? Why are the older men supposed to teach the younger so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us? Very interesting. Paul's thinking about the impact that the church has on this world. It's, he's thinking about the gospel impact. And how many of us know people that we talk to and we say, why don't you come and come over to the church and join the church or come visit the church? You grew up in the church or you know about the church. And what do most people say? Well, I've been to church and the church is full of hypocrites. I've been to church and the church are people who are one way on Sunday and a different way throughout the week. And then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why do those people say that? Is this not true? Are there sometimes, well, join the club of hypocrites, as some would say. No, it is because at times what is, what is missing is intentional discipleship where there is this one-on-one, life-on-life relationship. Where sin is being called out, called out, where help is being given in the areas that is needed. Where the, where the bride of Christ is becoming more and more pure and being a great witness. You see, we cannot separate verses 11 to 14 with verses 1 through 10. The reason why we disciple is for holiness. The reason why we do the discipleship of older to the younger is because of the gospel. And so Christ has enlisted us to do this work. And I want us to look at a parallel passage, which is found in Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, if you can turn there with me, and it's also going to be on the screen, I want to look at this diagram that will be beneficial, I think, for us to understand how this all works. In verse 11, we read that Christ gave gifts to the church. And some of the gifts that Christ gave are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so what are, what are the shepherd teachers supposed to do? They're supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They equip the saints through the Word of God. So they give us tools. Those who teach the Word of God give tools to all of us. They furnish us. To a certain degree at times, if you've ever moved into a new apartment or home, if you show up, there is nothing there. You need to furnish it for it to be a living room. You need a couch and you need a coffee table. Maybe you need a TV. Maybe you need a, a stand of some sort, a wall art. You're furnishing it so that you can use that living room for its intended purpose. And so God gives gifts, pastor teachers, to equip, to furnish, to give you the tools to do the work of ministry. Well, the work of ministry is done by all of us building up the body of Christ. Which leads to verse 13, the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. And in verse 14, there's a similarity with Titus 2. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is similar to this idea of renouncing godliness and living holy lives in this present age. Now, the beautiful thing on the counterside of how discipleship work, it doesn't only benefit the person that you are quote-unquote discipling, but it benefits you as you are also growing in holiness. And so, before we continue to who disciples, I want to ask you, do you see the benefits 
the great benefits of intentional and deliberate relationships in the church that work towards holiness or that work and produce holiness. Christ came, the grace of God appeared. His whole purpose was to bring salvation, but to bring salvation to people whose lives would match up with their profession, whose conduct would would match up with what they believe. And what he has given us in the middle there is one another. So as we fulfill the one another's, we can bridge the gap of what we know and how we are living. And so now going to the question, second point of who disciples, we want to see the person. Who are the people that are to disciple? And anytime I I speak on discipleship, anytime I talk about the topic of discipleship, automatically in our mind, we at times think that discipleship is for the super spiritual. We think it is for the deacons, the elders in the church. Sometimes we think discipleship is for those who are the Batman and the supermen of the spiritual faith. Those who are really mature, those who have really something to teach, those who went to seminary, who read a lot of books, those who are extroverts, they can really, you know, get into someone's life and pull things out that are needed. But we see here two categories, older men and older women, and specifically a call for older men and older women to disciple those who are younger. And we're going to see what older men and women mean. But at the same time, I want us to see that that it is not excluded only for the older men and the older women because the idea of discipleship is found in the rest of the New Testament and is not limited only to these two age groups because the idea of the one another's of the New Testament is something that we are all called to do. And we'll see that in a little bit. And so first of all, older men. Older men in verse 2 are to be a certain way. But first of all, who are older men? Older men doesn't give us an indication of their age, but it was, generally speaking, someone who was old enough to have raised a family and seen their children begin families of their own. Depending when you started to have kids, this could be as early as 45 or as late as 65. Anyone who is maybe around those ages, someone who's already walked the walk, And let's look at some of these qualifications, sober-minded, in contrast to drunkenness, someone who has clarity of mind resulting in good judgment, someone who is dignified, so not silly, but someone who is really worthy of respect, and then self-controlled. And it's interesting that self-control is used in the passage multiple times. The older men are to be self-controlled. The the women are supposed to teach those younger uh, women to be self-controlled. And then older men are to teach the younger men only one thing, which is self-control. And then the grace of God has appeared to do what? To teach us to live lives of self-control. One author writes that self-control is one of the essential characteristics of the Christian life, really one of the purposes of the incarnation. And one of the other characteristics is that they need to be sound or healthy in their faith, in their love, and in their steadfastness. When we look at the, in verse 3, older women are given also characteristics, are likewise to be reverence and behavior. So this outward expression is positive of an inward character, that's reverence and behavior, not slanderers. So people who can control their tongues without speaking lies, false accusations, spreading gossip, or slaves to much wine. Now, one, one commentator wrote this, and I thought, 
it might resonate with some of us. But he, he spoke about older women and the opportunity that they have once the children leave the home. As children grow up and leave home, the older woman's focus may become less defined as her f- familiar responsibilities. This may contribute to feelings of uselessness or loneliness, low self-esteem, and self-pity. Paul suggested in this passage that older women should possess personal godliness, be worthy of respect, and play an essential role in the lives of young women in the church. The concept of spiritual mentoring is evident in this passage. Now, as I, like I said, although we see here two categories, and this is what Paul is calling Titus to teach those in the church who are older women and older men, calling them and enlisting them and saying, do this work. You have things to share. You have life to share. You have wisdom to share. We see, though, in the rest of the New Testament, intentional and deliberate living with one another is what is normal. We see that in the epistles, oftentimes, Paul gives commands that are in the second plural. You all. You all encourage one another, edify one another, love one another, restore one another. You all bear burdens with one another. And I love Romans 15 because there it encourages us that we all can do this work. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to do what? Instruct one another. He says, you can do all this. You have the power of God within you to do this. Now, what are both of these older men and women supposed to teach? Well, they're supposed to, older women are supposed to teach younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands. As we look at this list, we see that this list is very practical. It doesn't teach, say, that the older woman should teach the younger woman to learn eschatology, Christology, to learn things, to, to take systematic theology book and start going from it from chapter 1 all the way to the end. That is what they're supposed to teach, real life, practical living of how they've walked with the Lord, how they have prayed for their children, how they have leaned into the Lord in hard circumstances of life and share that with others. And for men, I've always found it interesting that Paul said that men only need one thing, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. It seems that if you can figure that out for a young man, everything else will follow. Now, although there is a long list in each of these, I just really want to focus on self-control, how we can, as a church, pass on or teach self-control, to train or to urge. Self-control literally means power over self. Self-discipline or self-mastery, it's a person of a sound mind, a person who knows the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. I'm going to say it again. The what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. So why is God, through Paul, telling older men and women to teach this to the next generation? Because how often does the next generation not know the how and the when of doing what needs to be done? The how and the when of how to have a hard conversation with your spouse. The how and the when of transitioning when your children are moving from younger years to older. And how do you let them go in a way that is a little bit, that is disattached and beautiful and keeps the relationship healthy. The how and the when of having a hard conversation with a non-believer at work who is ready to hear the gospel, the how and the when. Self-control. Now, David Mathis, speaking on self-control, says, it's not a flashy concept, not an especially attractive idea. 
It doesn't churn heads or grab headlines. It can be as seemingly small as saying no to another Oreo, French fry or milkshake, or another half hour on Netflix or Facebook. Or it can feel as significant as living out a resounding yes to sobriety and sexual purity. It is at the heights of Christian virtue in a fallen world, and its exercise is quite simply one of the most difficult things you can ever learn to do. Another writer says that self-control is a form of freedom, freedom from laziness, freedom from expectations and demands of others, freedom from weakness and fear and doubt. So do young men need to learn self-control today? Do young fathers need to learn self-control today? Yes. If we look at society at large, it's all about pleasure and do whatever you want and do not have control over yourself. And therefore, people fall into various vices, all the way from being in bondage to pornography to spending hours watching series on Netflix, from being controlled by their emotions instead of having mastery over self. Do women need to hear this today? Yes. Because as we look at the areas of self-control, these are all areas that we can grow in. The areas of self-control begin with the tongue. James says, look at the ships. They're so large, driven by strong winds, yet but they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pirate directs. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Very interesting. Be self-controlled in your speech. How many of us would have loved to learn that from somebody who was more mature in the faith? How many fires could have not been started by someone teaching us how to communicate effectively? How many chill of, our, of our children would not be using the lingo that we use that is not beneficial if we were taught self-control in the tongue? Not only in the tongue, but also in the time. Being self-controlled in time, Ephesians 5.16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Self-control in the body, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, the fleshly desires, which range from anything of desires of cravings of what to eat to what you want to watch. Self-control of the heart. How do you guard your heart with all vigilance? Because from it flow the springs of life. How do you do this practically? Give us the how and the why of doing it. We find, though, that God has not left us alone. He has given us the power for self-control by His Spirit. It's very interesting that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We often hear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness. How many of us walk around saying, self-control, fruit of the Spirit, I want more of that in my life? But it is there. It's the last one on the list. Look at the kind of spirit God has given us in 2 Timothy. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Christ is the power for self-control. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to put him on, you're going to make no provision for the flesh. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So we see here self-control is extremely important. And the benefits of a self-controlled life are organized life, an energized life, a purposeful life, a calm life, a life of fruitfulness. So we've looked at why do we disciple? 
we've seen here in our passage, it's for holiness, so that the bride of Christ may be pure. We've also seen who disciples. Here, the specific call is for older men and older women, but it's not limited only to those. It's somebody who could be a little further ahead of you that you can learn from and someone who is a few years behind you that you can benefit and serve. And so the question comes, how do we disciple? What's the way that we do this? I think this is oftentimes where we get into the weeds of things. This is at times where we get stuck. Yes, we know the call of the New Testament to disciple, to be proactively involved in each other's lives, but the question is how? We have different personalities. We have different work uh, places that we work at. We don't have a time that fits with one another to be able to do this. What do I talk about? What questions do I ask? How do I go about this work of discipleship? Now, once again, I want to remind us that discipleship is not only a one-on-one meeting. Discipleship happens right now as you're being discipled, learning from God's Word. It happens at home groups. It happens when you go to a ladies' Bible study. Discipleship happens on a, uh, in various areas of our life. But as we look back at what older men and older women are supposed to teach the younger, what we notice here is that this list shows us the basic necessities of life to help people, followers of Christ, live in a manner worthy of their calling. For men, it's self-control. For women, it is to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive. The things that are being taught, once again, are very practical matters. But what is oftentimes needed is not the science Not always the theology, but the art, the practical side of how do I live this out in my life. Friends, i got to ask this question. Why is it that people who go to seminary can read 200 books in a three-year span, spend hours sitting in lectures, and come out on the other end still with raging anger at their kids at night when they don't sleep? How is it that people can go through seminary and then be in the pastoral ministry, knowing all the theology, and then be those who are disqualified because of an affair. Why is it that theology and truth not always equates to living? And so what God desires is that in the church there would be people who are conduits, who would take the truth that they know that they've lived out practically and share it with the next generation. What is... What is not always lacking is truth, but what is at times lacking is wisdom, which is truth applied. Why are there still people who struggle when we have all the truth before us, when we have a million sermons at our fingertips? Oftentimes, we know the the what, but not the how. Once again, going to some of those that I messaged this week, they talked about these nuances of life. And one of them wrote, I would benefit from having a mature Christian man mentor me by spending more time in God's word and prayer, which would allow more time for questions about different aspects of the Christian faith. I can ask what made him stumble when they were my age. I find that I have the same struggles in common with other men that I work with. I second-guess myself often, not completely sure the best way to address situations. This is, not a, this is not a matter of theology. It's a matter of practical 
living. And so, how do we do this? Well, we go to this passage here. It's telling us that we need to train and we need to urge. Where are the times and locations that you can train and that you can urge? And if we go back to Matthew 28, the very first line says, as you go, make disciples. As you go. What is this idea of as you go? The idea is this, as you are living life, as you are attending a home group, as you are at church, as you're going to a ladies' monthly book study, as you're living life, as you're meeting at the park, as you're living life, not an extra separate meeting. You can do that if you would like. But the idea simply here is be intentional with the time that you already have. Be intentional with the moments that God has already given you. It's not something that we need to add to our current life. It's something that we need to be more intentional in. And the way that it can simply work is this. I remember when I was doing this a number of years back, before we would have our Wednesday night home group, I would be walking to home group or driving to home group and thinking, who is there that I'm going to have a conversation with? We have a 30-minute time, a fellowship. Who am I going to spend 15 minutes with and seek to see how they're doing, to seek to see how I can pour into their life? And it wasn't that we spent time outside of that, but that person I would then follow up every single week for one month, two months, three months. And over time, we built a friendship, and it wasn't in a separate location. It was just in the organic time of fellowship that we have. You see, this, as you go, alleviates the notion that you have to do something extra. It is an option, but more naturally, be intentional where you're already at. We have church picnics where we get together. Can we be intentional there? Yes. We have, we have men's breakfast. Can we be intentional there? Yes. You are grabbing dinner together like we did with the lunch for six last week. You can be intentional there, yes. And so you're intentional with who you speak with and what you discuss. And so I want to define it a little bit more, what discipleship is, and I think it will help us better understand. So discipleship is intentional and deliberate. Okay, it's, it's purposeful initiative. Discipleship involves encouragement. Christians need encouragement in order to be faithful to persevere in the faith. Discipleship is focused on making followers of Christ, not more on moral reformation or, or trying to make a copy of yourself. Discipleship is really rooted in the Word of God. So it's not just our good advice, but it is saying this, younger man, younger woman, I placed my trust in the Lord because he said that those who those who trust in him have perfect peace whose mind is stayed on, on, on Christ, on God. Um, Isaiah 26, 3. And I did that. And I trusted in the Lord and he gave me perfect peace. It's in the word of God and not just advice. It's the fact that I applied the word of God and this is what happened and you can do likewise. Disciple, discipling is loving. It's caring for someone's soul in a way that is love. And obviously, discipling, lastly, is relational. It's not just watching a lesson or video. It involves humans sharing our lives with one another. I'll give you another example. I had, I had breakfast with a brother not too long ago, and he's very similar in terms of personality with me to a certain degree. And I, and I asked him, you're kind of like a type A guy, and I'm kind of like a type A guy. 
how do you work around the home when uh, you're trying to talk over things with your wife and your wife might not be a type A person? How do you deal with that? You've been married for 30 years. And he shared some really just great insights and just one phrase that was just like, that's amazing. Your wife loves you when you don't treat her like a project, but treat her like a partner. And I just blew away. How many books did I read? How many things did I study? How many passages did I preach from Ephesians 5? Your wife wants you to treat her like a partner, not a project. Thank you. Be more like Christ. Be patient. Be loving. Be caring. What did that brother do? He learned to apply Ephesians 5 to his life, to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And the way that he his wife was loved by treating her like a partner. And so, how can you get started? Well, I already read a long list before. I don't want to go through it again, but it is just using the common times of life and just being more intentional. And so, what discipling looks like in practice is pretty wide open, but once again, it's rooted in the truth of Scripture and presented on the base of an intentional, loving relationship. And so find someone who's older, you can ask them, or those who are older, look for those who are younger. That's really the challenge of our text this morning. And who do you ask, who do you look up to? Who do you already have a relationship with that you can go deeper? Now, as I'm saying this, I'm not saying that this is not happening on Gateway Bible Church. I, what I'm saying is that we can go deeper in this, that there is room to grow as there always is. If you read Paul, he always says, you're doing great but keep going. You're doing great, but keep growing. And so before we get to the conclusion, I want to do something that we usually don't do at Gateway. I want to give you one minute right now. And since many of you have your pens in your hands and pieces of paper, I want you to think about one person in your life. If you aren't discipling or aren't being discipled, think of one person in your life that you could pour into. And also think about one person in your life that you look up to, that you would love to meet with or just be more intentional with at the times where we already gathered. I'm just going to give you one minute to do that and just prayerfully consider. This might not be the person that you're going to reach out to, but think of somebody. I want you to, to think of that person right now and jot down their names. And if you jotted some names down, which I hope you have, I want you to pray over those people this week before you even talk to them. Pray about those people and see where the Lord would direct. And within the next few weeks, seek to reach out to them. And so as we conclude, we've seen that discipleship, this definition is very simple, deliberately, intentionally relating to one another with the aim of doing good spiritually. And you might be thinking as as you're listening to this, well, Dennis, this all sounds good, but. And there's always buts. There's always objections in our life. There's thoughts that come to our mind, and typically these thoughts are why we should not be doing something versus why we should be doing something. And so I want to look at a few reasons why we might not think that we are fit for this or might not be doing this work. And the first one is that you might have this thought, and I've had this thought before. I don't want to be in a position of authority. I don't want to be in a position of authority to teach someone something. And what we find is that discipleship is not you putting yourself in a position of authority. The only authority that you have is God-given authority. The only authority comes from the Word of God. 
All you're sharing is what God's Word already says and how you've lived through it in your life. You see, our culture breeds this independence. So we, we have this notion that having an authority or being seen as an authority is, is really not so appealing. But it's not something that is biblical. God created authority to be a beautiful thing. The second thing you might be thinking is, well, intentional, intentional discipling turns friends into projects. And I've had people tell me this. Well, we were friends, or we're friends, but Dennis, you care so much about my spiritual growth. Well, what else should I be caring about with you? <laughs> you see, Jesus, when he called his disciples, he said, you're no longer my disciples, you're my friends. What he said was this. What friendship really is, is whatever I heard from my father, I made known to you. Friendship is shown by sharing the Father's will. Friendship is shown by sharing the truth of God's word with others. We're not merely taking people and turning them into projects, but we're loving them by sharing God's revealed truth with one another. Sometimes we might be thinking, I just don't feel like it, or I don't have time for it. And the simple question there is, well, what are your priorities then? What are the priorities in your life, and do they align with God's many commands and his word? Sometimes we say, well, I don't have anything that I can teach. The idea here is not to exposit certain passages of Scripture and be a great exegete. The idea here is to share what you have lived through in your life from God's Word. And so don't focus so much on yourself, but focus on what God has done through you. Sometimes we say, well, I'm not gifted to disciple others. Others are more gifted than I am, so let them use their gift of discipleship. But the reality is this, every single person who has received the Spirit, has a spiritual gift. And you can use your spiritual gift to build up the body. As we do this in the church, and I want to encourage you and give you hope, as we do this in the church, two things happen. Number one, our joy is increased. Our joy is increased because this is what John did, this is what Paul did, (laughs) and this is what Paul writes. He says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. Paul Paul then writes, make my joy complete by being like-minded. He says, I long for you, church. You're my joy and my crown. Remember in 1 John, John says he has joy to hear that his children are walking in the faith. See, joy, joy comes from seeing other believers become more like Christ. Our joy is increased not only because we're seeing others grow, but because we're being useful. I feel like one of the biggest things that at times is missing is this idea of usefulness. Well, I need to be part of some kind of ministry in the church. You don't have to be in an official place of ministry. You can just use your gifting that God has given you. So our joy is increased, and ultimately God gets the glory. And so imagine, imagine every member of the body is taken care of. Imagine as families are being built up and older men are pouring into it as a conduit into younger men. Changing not only that man, but the relationship that he has with his wife and then his children. Think about the young man who is in Gateway Bible Church, being mentored by an older man who is then begins walking in maturity and being an influence and impact, whether he's in college or at his workplace. And likewise for the woman. Organically, we're living life together, discipling and growing focusing on intentional relationships, not organized programs, so that we would be pure and zealous, ready for every good work. And this is what Titus 2 has been about. It has been about this idea of God's organic method of growing us into holiness. And may the Lord help us 
to do this work. It's not always easy, but it is for sure beneficial and fruitful and joy-giving. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Paul, through whom you have written your word. We thank you that you reminded us of just the beauty of how we are to live life together in the body. We thank you that we have the opportunity to pour and be conduits of your grace into the lives of others. We thank you for your kindness in our life, really to give us one another, to give us a body where each member is is useful and has a purpose and fulfills a need. We praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience, help us to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel, and help us as we look at our life to, to think about those that we can pour into and think about those who could pour into us the wisdom of life that they've learned so that the church and the body of Christ may become more pure. For your glory and for our joy, we pray these things. Amen.